you've just started joining in with us online uh, in these last few weeks or even today's your first time uh, we'd love to connect with you a little bit more personally uh, feel free to email me at seth at crosslanesbaptist.org i'm also easy to find on facebook and i'd love to connect with you and communicate with you a little bit uh, we would be honored uh, for you to continue to worship with us and be a part of what god is doing here in the life of this church also if you have a decision that you need to make today for the lord or you have a step of faith or maybe a question about something that i say in the message here uh, i'd love to hear that as well and uh, try to help you out and be a blessing to you as much as i possibly can today the message is from luke chapter 6 uh, verses 37 to 39 and it's entitled use the right measure use the right measure and one of the things that we do in organizations, whether it be a church or business or school, is that we look at certain results to understand how we measure up. We want to know how we've done against the goals that we have set. We want to know whether or not we have made progress uh, from the past and what we're working toward in the future. And measuring our progress does several things. It helps us to spot weaknesses that we might have. It helps to motivate people in the organization. And it also helps to identify important areas for strategic effectiveness. And the action of measuring things pushes us forward and it helps to keep us on track. Using the correct measurement, however, is important. Because if we're measuring the wrong things or we're using the wrong measure to determine where we're headed or to evaluate where we've been, we might not get accurate information that would help us toward what we need to do personally or collectively as a group. And I'd say to you today that when it comes to spiritual matters and how we live our lives for God, His Word has given us some direct measurements that we can use to see whether or not we're on track. He's given us some guidelines, some helps to show us the way that we're supposed to be living so that we can honor Jesus with our lives. And Jesus, in his sermon in the Gospel of Luke, sets forth what I would refer to as ethics for daily life. Now, they're grace-driven all the way through. They're not performance-oriented. Uh, they're not do better and try harder. They're live in light of the grace that God has given you so that you can reflect him with who you are and how you live your life. And the grace that God has extended in your life, uh, Jesus is calling you to extend that grace to other people as well. In other words, we have been blessed, and because we've been blessed, we are to bless others. Now, in the last message in the Gospel of Luke, there was an emphasis on what we commonly refer to as the golden rule. How we are to live and to love and to treat other people the same way that we want to uh, be loved and to have other people treat us and we want to be merciful to other people as God has been merciful to us uh, so that we would receive mercy back in return but not expecting anything just doing it because it's the right thing to do so let's look at this scripture together in Luke chapter 6 beginning in verse 37 here's what the Bible says judge not and you shall not be judged Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, 
pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We find here four commands that are measures of love. Do not judge, do not condemn, forgive, and give. So let's look at these one by one. And the first is, do not judge. Now in our modern culture, this may be the most commonly misquoted and misunderstood phrase in all the Bible. Don't judge me. We hear it all the time. It's a common sentiment in our culture. We even see judgment-free zones that are promoted. And the idea is basically, don't think less of me for what I'm doing. Don't think that I'm a bad person for the actions that I'm undertaking. Don't think that you're better than me. And there are people who do not know a single Bible verse, not one in the whole Bible, and yet they can come up with this phrase. See, our culture teaches us that love affirms and celebrates all choices and all lifestyles, and to not do so is closed-minded. Now, sometimes the criticism toward Christians is well-deserved. It's not uncommon for people who have high moral convictions, who have some solid standards, to also have a high view of themselves. But if we are not careful as Christians, that high view of ourselves can come from a prideful heart. And when we have a high view of ourselves that's driven by our own self-righteousness, we can have a critical spirit toward other people, which, of course, according to the Bible, is wrong. So what are we to do? Are there any moral standards at all? Does Jesus mean that all judging is forbidden so that we are not to form or express any opinion. One commentator put it this, this way. He said, The Christian is called to unconditional love, but the Christian is not called to unconditional approval. We really can love people who do things God does not approve of and not necessarily love what they do. The type of judging Jesus commanded us not to do is a self-righteous kind of judging that overlooks our own faults, overlooks our own failures, our own sins, and only sees the faults and the failures and the sins of other people. Sinful pride in our heart makes it easy to see the issues other people have while we also overlook our own. Now, just a little bit later on in this same sermon, Jesus is going to call his disciples to judge people by their fruits. If Jesus did not intend for us to see things that are right as right and things that are wrong as wrong, then why would he give us, in the same context of this passage, a directive to judge and to evaluate and to understand people by their fruits? Jesus said in John chapter 7 and verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So he gives us even some instructions on how to evaluate things. The apostle Paul asked the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So don't miss this here. Jesus is condemning a judgmental 
attitude that is applied without mercy. All actions are not morally equal, and all ideas are not morally relative. It's important to note that truth is objective, and truth is not only objective, it is also eternal. And because truth is objective and eternal, we understand that the source of it, that the root of it, is in the holy character of God, which is unchanging. Now, furthermore, anything that contradicts the truth is a lie. It is impossible to live without making judgments in life. To call something right that God calls right is right. To call something wrong that God calls wrong is also right. But to do so with a critical judgmental spirit is wrong. We have to be careful to not let pride well up in our hearts so that we would rush to a judgment. Because the measure of judgment that we use is the same measure that will be applied back to us. Do not judge and you will not be judged in this critical condemning spirit but one thing we all know is that we will ultimately be be evaluated by the supreme judge and when the supreme judge evaluates our lives he will do so with complete information with a full view of who we are and what we've done and our hope in that moment will be the lord jesus christ who stands in our place. It's his righteousness applied to our lives that frees us from our sin and puts us firmly in the righteousness of God for all of eternity. Do not judge. The second commandment here is do not condemn. Do not condemn. The first point has to do with judgment. This point has to do with execution. The two points are closely related, but this one goes a step further. The same thought is repeated, but it adds emphasis to the first. Whereas judging is evaluating something based on how we see it or what our own perceptions are, especially if done in a critical spirit and with the wrong attitude, and condemning is deciding someone's outcome. Is determining what should happen to them based on what they have done. Condemnation is a, a legal terminology. And when it's discovered that a crime has been committed, that the law has been broken, the process of investigation leads to formal charges being leveled. Litigation leads to the outcome. Condemnation results in the punishment. And if we reject the grace of God in Christ, we will experience eternal condemnation. If we come under the judgment of the supreme judge and we've not received his grace and mercy, then we will experience eternal condemnation separated from God, the one who created us, gave us physical life, and also secured eternal life for all who believe. But here's the message of the gospel. If we are in Christ, there is now no condemnation because Jesus took our judgment upon himself. Listen to the way Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 and 2 puts it. 
There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ, Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now think about Jesus and the account of his response to the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. You remember a little bit about that story early. One morning, a crowd gathered in the temple courts to hear Jesus teach. They knew about his power. They had heard about his teaching. The Feast of Tabernacles had just ended, and there were still a lot of people around. And suddenly, Jesus was interrupted by a crowd of men surrounding an embarrassed woman. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, were proud and self-righteous people. And since adultery was a capital offense, the law demanded that an accusation by literal eyewitness be part of the testimony. So part of what was going on around this particular instance was suspect at best. How did they catch the woman in adultery? Was it a setup? Where was the guilty man who had committed this sin with her? If, in fact, she had been caught in the act, she would have been subject to stoning. So in that moment, as Jesus has been teaching and this woman is brought into his presence, there was much that was at stake. It was a serious situation. And the Bible says that Jesus began to bend down and draw on the ground. And he said in verse 7, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And you remember what happened? They began to disappear to walk away one by one they wanted to trap jesus but instead of trapping jesus they themselves ended up trapped and jesus faced the woman and he questioned her by asking where are they where did they go what happened to these people who were going to condemn you And then Jesus forgave her and said, Neither do I condemn. And he challenged her, Go now and leave your life of sin. Now don't miss this point here. Jesus was the only one who was qualified to stone her. But he didn't. He was the only one who could qualify ultimately to forgive her. And he did. He did not condemn her in this moment. And all of us, friends, are like that woman. We are guilty in the eyes of a holy God. We are deserving of the justice of God. And yet Jesus steps in and he rescues us through the finished work of the cross and the power of the resurrection. He has offered himself in our place. This is the Lord who is saying to you, do not judge with a prideful, critical spirit. Do not condemn as though you have no sin of your own. That is not up to you. It's ultimately up to God. And while we can evaluate actions as right or wrong in the sense of being fruit inspectors, the ultimate outcome is up only to God. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. The third command is forgive it's forgive forgiveness is a release to forgive is to dismiss 
is to let go. And the forgiveness that we have in Christ involves the release of sinners from God's just penalty. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14 says, In Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Christ purchased us by his blood. He bought us back so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be reconciled to God. And when he purchased us and bought us back and secured our salvation, and we receive him by faith, his forgiveness is ours. Now, now don't be confused at this point, because Jesus is not saying you can become forgiven by forgiving. That would be a works-based salvation based on your own merit. A works-based salvation based on your own merit would be absolutely contrary to the gospel of grace. It would negate the need for Jesus to come and to live and to die in our place and to be buried and to be raised if, in fact, we could earn our own salvation. So that's not what Jesus is saying. But what he is indicating here is that when God changes your life, when you are forgiven, it changes your disposition toward God, but it also changes your disposition toward others. It changes how you relate to God because now you can come freely and boldly before him. But then because you have received such forgiveness, you want to extend that forgiveness to other people. Remember, Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Is he not speaking of the measure of how we've been forgiven being applied to people who need to be forgiven? Matthew 6 and verse 14 and 15 says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now let's just be honest. This does not mean that we don't struggle with forgiveness from time to time. Sometimes we confuse the act of forgiveness with reconciliation, and we think that reconciliation will definitely happen if we forgive and we know that's not always true because we can't control how another person is going to respond or there may be some difficult circumstance as to why there's not a personal reconciliation in an ongoing uh, sense of a relationship there may be something so egregious that has happened or so dark or so difficult that has happened that that's just not a reality but yet we're commanded to forgive. We're commanded to release the obligation. And that's not always an easy thing to do. We have to have God's help to do that. It also doesn't mean that you're not going to have to fight the fight against bitterness. Because when people have wronged us and it's been a deep hurt, it's been a real hurt, it's been a real offense... Even when we find it in our hearts by the grace of God to forgive and to release them from that debt, sometimes we have to fight against bitterness because our flesh tells us that they didn't deserve it, that we shouldn't have forgiven them. What in the world were we thinking? And yet God says, forgive. But here's what it does mean. It means that genuine Christians will depend on the Lord and forgive others 
One commentator said this is one eternal principle which will be valid as long as the world lasts. The principle is forgiveness is a costly thing. Human forgiveness is costly. A son or a daughter may go wrong. A father or a mother may forgive. But forgiveness has brought tears. There was a price of a broken heart to pay. Don't let the price of forgiveness in your own life cause you not to extend forgiveness. Don't place a worthiness measure on a person to determine whether or not they should receive forgiveness. If you're struggling with forgiveness, if you're battling against bitterness, all you need to do is look to the cross. That God, while we were still sinners, sent His Son Jesus to die for us. Look to the immense value of what God has done for you through His only Son. Look at your own sin and reflect on your own life and think about how patient God has been with you and how time and again God has forgiven you. Not only did He forgive you at salvation, not only did He give you this gift of eternal life, but He has walked with you every step of the way and every time you have confessed your sins to Him. When you confess your sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So if God is freely forgiving you, then how could you not, as His child, also seek to freely forgive others. It was God alone who could pay the terrible price that was necessary so that we could be forgiven. And forgiveness is never a case of saying, it's all right, it doesn't matter. Forgiveness is a case of saying, that wasn't right, but I'm going to release it, and I'm going to entrust it to God and forgive as I've been forgiven. The fourth command is give. Give. God is the greatest giver of all. Did you know that your Heavenly Father is incredibly generous? He has freely given to us. Every single day, our God gives to us. We wake up and we have the breath of life. We have the blessing of God's grace. We have the hope of an eternal future. And all along the way, God is with us. He's guiding us. He's blessing us. He's using us. He's the greatest giver of all. And we might inventory the many blessings that He has poured out over us and in turn give back of our time and our talents and our treasures. But as our text in Luke states... Our giving results in once again receiving. And not only do we receive, but we receive more than we even gave. You cannot outgive God. If you spread love, God has given more love. If you spread joy, God has given more joy. If you spread truth, God is the source of truth. All of these things, God uses so when we give back to him he accepts those things he magnifies them and then he returns them to us in an enhanced spiritual value so that we can be more useful for him this is the spirit of giving and we should never give with a grudging spirit because that's not way the way god has given to us jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive 
St. Augustine said, I have tried to keep things in my hands and lost them all, but what I have given into God's hands, I still possess. Now, clearly, this has a, an application to our financial resources as well. Uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one out of six verses relate to money. Of the parables that Jesus taught, 16 deal with a person and their money. There are more than 2,000 Bible verses that relate to our resources. And you say, well, why is it such a prominent topic in the Bible? Because it has to do with the heart. It's really not about the money. It's not about the stuff. It's about the heart. And he says if we'll give, then it will be pressed down and shaken together to give you as much as possible it will be running over to the point of overflow so that we can say to god god my cup runs over because of your sufficient grace and he uses the terminology here of a person in those days who might go to the market and they would buy a couple of measures of grain for example and then after they had received the amount of grain that they had bought they might take their tunic and and pull it out just a bit and the merchant would pour the grain in the in the pouch of the tunic that had been formed so that it would be overflowing what they would take home with them and he says for with the same measure that you measure with it will be measured back to you second corinthians 9 and beginning of verse 6 says but i say this he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So when J Jesus says give, what Jesus is saying is emulate your Father give as your father has given to you generously and the law of sowing and reaping will come into play that god will bless with answered prayers with inner peace and joy with power in our lives with tools and resources to do the work of the kingdom and while giving is an act of grace and it is selfless the promise is god will bless it so i ask you this question in closing today using the measure of the ethics jesus sets forth for the christian life how faithful are you to live in the grace god has freely extended to you let me say that again using the measure of the ethics jesus sets forth for the christian life how faithful are you to live in the grace god has freely extended to you you may say preacher i can't do those things because i've not been forgiven myself god stands ready to forgive you and to receive you and welcome you as his child.
if you'll trust in him by faith. The greatest gift that's ever been given is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'll repent of your sins and believe in him for salvation, believing in his death and his resurrection, God will save your soul. Right now, in this moment, you can receive eternal forgiveness and be set on a path to live according to the grace of God. But I know enough to know that there's some Christians that hear these commands and there's conviction that comes to your heart. Because you know that you have been living, perhaps, according to a critical spirit. Or you're easy to rush to judgment and condemn somebody else. Or maybe you are unwilling to forgive someone something that happened long ago. And somehow you think that you're really getting back at that person by not releasing the debt. And God is saying to you, just as your debt has been released in Christ, then you in turn should release the debt of another person and freely forgive. God had set you free in your spiritual life if you take that step. Or maybe you've been holding back thinking that the supply was limited. And God says, don't think of it that way because all blessing flows from me. And if you'll let the blessing flow through your life in every aspect, then I'll bless you with more grace than you could ever imagine. Let's bow our heads together as we pray, and then we'll have a closing song. As we bow our heads to pray, as I said at the outset of the message, I'd love to hear from you so that I can pray for you, encourage you, connect with you. If you have a step of faith to take today, as I mentioned, you can communicate directly with me at Seth at CrosslanesBaptist.org or maybe send me a message on Facebook or many of you have my direct number as well. I, I would love to hear from you just to say, this is what's going on in my life and this is how I need prayer. These are the steps that I'm taking. Father, in these moments, we're thankful that we can do all of these things freely because of what you've done for us it's not in our strength it's not in our power we can't but you can so we thank you today for the cross for the power of the resurrection for the indwelling spirit for the truth of the word by which we can measure our lives and by which we can emulate jesus in all that we do so i pray if there are steps that need to be taken today that people would respond accordingly that, God, you would guide and lead as you see fit. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.